I invite you to turn with me in the copy of God's Word and in the New Testament to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking tonight at verses 6 through 10. As you're turning there, uh, let me say, uh, start with a confession. Uh, I preached this message about a month ago at uh, our sister congregation in uh, Harvest in a Presbyterian church in Medina for the installation of their new senior pastor, Seth Young. And as I, I picked this text because it is commonly a text that usually you go to uh, when there's an ordination or an installation as it talks about being a good minister of Jesus Christ. But as I was studying, preparing that message, the more I studied and uh, dove into the text, the more I realized that Paul's admonitions and imperatives to his spiritual son, Timothy, are really for all Christians, for all believers. And so I thought this is a great opportunity, since none of you were there uh, last month, but also to just to remind ourselves of what we are all called to do, regardless of your ordination status or your role in ministry. And by the way, every single one of you have an important part to play in the life of this ministry. Your ministry here, whatever it is, is not any more important than Pastor Pylons. It's just different. Our roles are distinct in function, but not in their value and their importance for the work of the church and for the glory of Christ. And so I want to challenge and encourage each of us this evening as we go to God's Word and as we hear Pastor Paul encouraging the next generation, Pastor Timothy, to be a good servant of Christ. I want to unpack together uh, with just a few thoughts of what that looks like and what that means. So let's give our attention once again to the word of the Lord. 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 10. Paul says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Well, thus far in God's holy and inerrant and inspired word, and may he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Well, as I just mentioned, Pastor Paul is coming to the end of his ministry. And as we learn in the book of Acts, particularly chapter 16, uh, Paul has been with Timothy now for many years. Timothy, as a young man, joined this merry band of brothers in apostolic mission, particularly on Paul's second missionary journey. And Timothy got to sit at the feet of Paul and Luke and Silas. But now uh, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. Ephesus, a church that Paul planted and pastored for a longer period of time than he pastored anywhere else 
in his apostolic ministry. So Ephesus had a a special place in Paul's heart. Uh, And it's not incidental or accidental that he gives charge to Timothy to take over the shepherding uh, and the pastoring of this congregation. Again, uh, Timothy is left there and he's facing, as any minister faces, a tough and difficult task. But Paul here encourages Timothy to stand fast, despite everything happening around him. And we know some of the things contextually that were going on in Ephesus, but there's actually a lot we don't know, and I'm glad we don't know. Because I don't care what church you're at, whenever you're talking within redemptive history, there are problems and sins in church because it's filled with sinners like you and like me of which I am the chief. I remind my people all the time, I'm the worst sinner I know. I don't know the ways all of you've sinned before a holy and righteous God, but I know many of the ways that I have. And I know God knows the ways even of which I'm not aware and are blind to in my own hearts. So church can be messy sometimes. doesn't excuse it, but we need to be realistic with our own expectations and understanding of what it is we're doing in the covenant community. And so it's necessary, first of all, to understand this phrase that Paul uses here in the opening verse, verse 6. He says, if you put these things, and we know contextually he's referring to everything else that he has already said, which I'll talk more about in a moment, but also what he's about to say sort of works both ways. He basically says, Timothy, if you do what I tell you, Things will go well. Wouldn't it be great if you were parents or other people, if you have someone you mentor and disciple, you ever find yourself, if you just do what I tell you, life will go well. Husbands, do you ever tell that to your wives? And then do you have to go find a hotel or a friend to sleep with that night? Yeah. Tim, but Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the wisdom of years and advanced age and pastoral ministry, is saying, look, if you do these things, you will be... Again, a good servant. That word in the Greek for servant is the Greek word doulos. You might have heard of that before. It literally is translated to slave or bondservant. Now, some translations in the English Bible will typically translate this word here because Paul's talking to a fellow elder and pastor as good minister. But again, I think the ESV is right in translating that from the Greek to good servant because here the things he talks about are true for all of us. In the church. As you think about what is God's will for my life, usually when we ask that question, we're only thinking vocationally. But it's a broader concept within the kingdom and economy of heaven to consider what our true calling is. As our catechism says, what is man's chief end? To glorify God. That's your purpose. That's your mission in life. Whatever that looks like, however that gets flushed out, however that gets worked out in your daily living, wherever God has you today, might not be where He has you tomorrow or next month or next year, but whatever you are and wherever you are, we are called to honor and glorify the Lord and to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Again, this does not just refer to Timothy as a member of the clergy, but it's also a part of this word doulos, as well as diakonos, where we get our Greek word for deacon. He's not speaking specifically to Timothy as an officer in the church, but as a servant. We are all called to this task, to be a part of doulos and diakonos, to be a servant of Christ 
in the service of Christ. That's our calling. And if you're going to be a good servant, then Paul says there are certain things you need to do and not do. As we come and find so typical of Paul in his pastoral writings, he gives admonishments and imperatives that are always based in the indicatives or true statements of the gospel. So he tells us what is already true, regardless of our behavior and lifestyle, Particularly in the book of Ephesians, he says, You have, were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, has made you alive in Christ. That's happened. That's true of your union with Christ. So therefore, love one another, serve one another, be unified in the church. Husbands, so these imperatives or these commands are always based in the theology of the grace of the gospel. He's not saying, if you do these good things, and if you become a good servant of Jesus Christ, then Christ will love you and forgive you. No, no, no. He has already forgiven us. And our life then is lived as a response in gratitude to what he has done. So his first admonition and imperative here is what I would call, be careful what you eat. Be careful what you eat. Look at what he says being a good sir, being trained in verse six in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That word there to be trained could also be translated be educated. Our other translations use it uh, in, in the word nourished, be nourished. Be trained, be educated. What we might say, be well fed. Of course, I'm not talking about be careful what you eat, our physical eating. But I'm asking and and pleading with our hearts. What are you partaking in? What are you feeding in your own soul? What do you watch? What do you listen to? What do you look to? Where does your mind and your heart go when you have free time and nothing else to do? Paul says, feed upon the good doctrine that you have followed. Be trained in the words of faith. Be nourished. He's saying, what do you put in your mind and your heart? What captivates your imagination? There's a lot of good things that can captivate our attention, aren't there? There's a lot of things that in and of themselves are wonderful and fine and great. But do they become the consuming reality of our lives? Do we give so much time and attention to them, more so than we do the good doctrine of the faith? More than being in this word, in this book. Essentially, we could say it another way, what becomes of your spiritual diet? I had a professor in seminary, a professor of missions and evangelism, a Brazilian Presbyterian by the name of Dr. Elias de Santos Medeiros. He had a thick Brazilian Portuguese accent, loved, but he was one of the most contagious, joy-filled, excitable men who loves the Lord. I mean, this guy, he, he would admit he loved having a cell phone because when telemarketers call him, he said, this is great, he says, they, they legally can't hang up on you. 
So like you usually, we always use hang up on them, right? But he loved it. He started sharing the gospel with them. And they can't hang up. He's like, oh, this, this is wonderful. He's like, I, I always answer telemarketers. They can't hang up. I share the gospel. And he would say every day in class, he would say, dear brothers, I love this act, dear brothers, have you eaten today? And of course, he wasn't asking if we had breakfast or lunch. He was asking, have we been in the word? Imagine if you were to go days or weeks or even months on end without eating a meal. We know physically and biologically what would happen to our bodies. Why do we think it would be any different if we abstained and fast from the scriptures? Spiritually, we'd start to atrophy and decay. We have to be careful what we eat. Paul urges Timothy to give himself what will really feed and nourish and grow his soul. And that is the words of the faith and good doctrine. We know the truth will set us free. Jesus tells us the truth will set us free. At the opening of uh, uh, your Bibles, particularly if you have an ESV Bible, you'll see a quote at the beginning talking about the English Bible that is often quoted uh, when there is a new king or queen uh, at their coronation in Britain. Now, Queen Elizabeth has been on the throne 70 years, so it's been 70 years. Most of us have never seen a coronation. We weren't alive. But what typically happens is the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of Church of Scotland in presenting the Queen uh, of England in her installment or enthronement, they actually, part, this is part of the liturgy in the Church of England, when a new king or queen is installed, they hand her a Bible. And then they say, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Can you imagine at a presidential inauguration someone saying that? Now they still put their hand on a Bible, but sometimes I wish they wouldn't. That's the positive side of what's Paul saying. Be careful what you eat, what you feed upon. But there's also a negative side. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths have nothing to do with silly myths. It's so easy to be distracted, isn't it? Whether things that we know automatically in and of themselves are unhealthy or unhelpful, or if there's other things which are just silly. Now again, Jacob can attest to this. I love to be silly sometimes, and I love a good joke, and I love to be sarcastic. We have to be careful with that. Our lives are not a joke. Sin is serious. And there are plenty of myths in this age and plenty of falsehood that are bombarding our culture on a daily basis. And so again, that's why it's so important to be in this book because if all we do is come once a week, even if we come every week, and sit under a sermon for 30 or 40 minutes, but then the whole rest of the week, what are we, who's speaking into our lives and our hearts? whether it's the culture or media or social media, or even worse, our own minds. 
There's a great book by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression, in which he cautions uh, against some of the problem why people get depressed spiritually. Now, this isn't always true, but some of the times it is true. The problem is that we listen to ourselves too much instead of speaking to ourselves. And as the psalmist cries out, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in the living God. A lot of our problem is we're listening to ourselves, we're listening to the culture, we're listening to the world around us, rather than listening to what God says. So many myths and irreverent myths, superstitions. In one sense, this could mean foolish old wives' tales. But there were other superstitious myths that were prominent in Ephesus. And I would say they're prominent even in the world today. And sometimes we have to be careful. They can be prominent if we're not uh, cautious, even in the church. What one television show one time said, I'm not superstitious, I'm a little stitious. Even that can be dangerous. Even that can be dangerous. Keep your thumb in First Timothy. Look back with me. It's Psalm 101. Psalm 101. Another psalm of David. He says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when you come to me. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Boy, isn't that convicting? Verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And you know what? These smartphones are great and dangerous all at the same time. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor in the Dayton area, and he won't get one. He says, I don't trust myself. And it's not because he's worried about looking at anything immoral. He says, I don't trust myself to waste time and to procrastinate having a smartphone. I said, you're more sanctified and better man than I am. In college, one summer, I worked at a Christian bookstore, and this was a Protestant Christian bookstore. I won't say the name of it. It's closed down now, though, but they were based out of Nashville, Tennessee, so you can guess. You know what I found out quickly was the number one seller at this bookstore? It wasn't a book. It wasn't a CD. And this was, again, a, essentially a Baptist Christian bookseller. Where, what the number one seller were St. Joseph statues. You know what St. Joseph statues are? I, I learned working there. Uh, within Roman Catholic theology, St. Joseph is the patron saint of real estate. And so when people would sell their house... I can't tell you the number of times I was working the cash register and people would come up to me and say, well, I'm not Catholic, but I figure it couldn't hurt. And so they would bury it in their front yard and that was supposed to help sell the house really fast. Do we trust the Lord or are we hedging our bets? Have nothing to do with silly and irreverent myths. But another admonition gives, point two, I'd say, be careful how you exercise. Be careful how you exercise. Verses seven and eight, look, he says, have nothing to do with the irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 
For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. Last month I had my annual physical. I'm glad to say that thankfully I'm doing okay now, but my doctor had to come to Jesus meeting with me and say, Lee, you know I'm going to say, you got to eat better and exercise more. And I brought out 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. I said, physical training is of some value. No, I didn't do that. I'd get slapped, and rightfully so. No, physical training is of value. And you know who are, those of you who are runners and athletes, right? This is not something that you can just drift along in. If you're going to be healthy, it takes discipline and work, doesn't it? And it's hard. But just as it's hard to do that, so too sometimes can spiritual discipline be trying and taxing. But oh, is it so worth it? Paul uses athletic metaphors all the time in his epistles. He uses metaphors of running in races, of gladiator fights and boxing matches. And he says physical training here is of immense value. But physical training on its own will not produce a healthy and balanced life. He says godliness, though, is different. Godliness is of value in every way. It's great to be physically healthy, but far more important to be spiritually healthy. The Greek here word for training that Paul uses is the Greek word uh, gymnazo. Does that sound familiar to anything we have in English? Gymnasium. Uh, this train, think of it as, a, as the spiritual disciplines of being in the word, of prayer, of sitting under the means of grace, of worship in the covenant community on the Lord's day. This is our spiritual gymnasium in which we are training ourselves for godly life and for godly living. But it begs the question, if I'm called to train myself for godliness, what is godliness? It's the practice of being godly. What does that mean? Well, Jerry Bridges has an excellent book. It's called The Practice of Godliness. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. But he says this, The practice of godliness is an exercise or discipline that focuses upon God. I like that definition because, again, important to training and discipline is focus. If you are distracted or if you are half-hearted, you will not be disciplined. And it's a devotion that he goes on to write and say that involves activity. But it's more than just doing things or an activity. Bridges says that the godly living is composed of three things. The fear of God, the love of God, and the desire for God. You could have a whole sermon series or Sunday school class. The fear of God, the love of God, and the desire for God. But that's what it looks like to be godly. Then Paul goes on to say, verse 9, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He uses this formula five times where he repeats it in this letter to Timothy. He's basically saying, hey, listen up, wake up. The time of the sermon where you're nodding off or checking your email or, or as Timothy's reading, hang with me. But this is really, everything I've been said is important, but this is really important. Jesus in the Gospels would say, verily, verily, I tell you. In the Old Testament, we have the superlative when Isaiah sees God's holiness and the angels and seraphim are crying out this cacophony, holy, holy, holy. God is not holy. 
He is not holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. As you can read all kinds of great Ligonier tapes and hear Sproul teach masterfully on the superlative character of the holiness of God. But here Paul uses this refrain. This word, this saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. It's important. Why are we doing all this? What's ministry and service and being a good servant in the kingdom all about? Well, our third and final point, be careful of what your goals are. Be careful what you eat, firstly. Be careful how you exercise. And thirdly, be careful of what your goals are. I know many of you, some people have to write out goals, and it's great to have goals. It's important to have goals, to have a purpose and a function. But have you ever asked yourself these questions? Are these truly worthy and kingdom-oriented goals? It gets to Paul's motivation. But this is what he says in verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive. This is why we're doing this. And if you read the book of Acts, you can see Paul's life, after encountering Jesus of Nazareth, was not an easy life. Paul did not live his best life now. His best life is yet to come, and it is for you and me too. Luke writes in Acts, through many tribulations do we enter the kingdom of God. This is why we toil. This is why we strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who's the Savior of all people. That's why we're doing this. We have a hope. And we are a people of hope. And our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our strength. Our hope is not in our discipline. Our hope is not in our theology. Our hope's in God. The living God who is the sovereign as well as the savior of his church. But these imperatives here in this section of Timothy, this letter to Timothy, it's filled with activity. Uh, these words uh, are, are express uh, energy and effort of decision, of commitment. Now, I don't want to speak for all of you, but if you're sitting here tonight in a Reformed and Presbyterian church, we are historically called what's known as Calvinists. And as Reformed Christians and Presbyterians and as Calvinists, we cherish the doctrines of grace because it's all about Jesus Christ, not us. Isn't it wonderful that the world does not center around us? But it's around God. And that changes everything. This morning, I'm preaching through Acts. We were in Acts 16. We looked at Paul and Silas in prison. And I was struck yet again this week. Paul and Silas were beaten mercilessly, are imprisoned wrongly without a fair trial in the marketplace. They're locked away in the inner prison and in the stocks and chains. And what's their response? They're singing and praying. They're not lamenting the injustice of this situation, though it was unjust. They're not whining and complaining and, and crying out to God. They were not playing the martyr card to their fellow inmates, they were testifying to the hope of the living God. They were singing and praying psalms, and the prisoners around them couldn't believe it. They were doing what the Apostle Peter admonishes the church to do. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. But my friend, you know, that presupposes we have a hope. And as believers, we're called to a great and living 
hope. Why do we do all of this? Why do we read and study and pray and worship and serve and give and go in mission and ministry? We do all of it because we have a great hope. The best is yet to come. This world is not all there is. The best is yet to come. That's why we nourish ourselves. So I ask you this evening in closing, what are you hoping for? Whether it's from Christ Presbyterian Church or in your own life, from your job, from your family, from God, what do you long for? What do you desire? The gospel that Jacob preaches week in and week out is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When those prison was shaken in Paul and Silas's day by a great earthquake, the, the Philippian jailer who thought they had escaped and was about to take his own life, and Paul stops him, in the magnitude of the situation, the Philippian jailer gets the question that almost none of us get, but wouldn't we love to get as believers? He comes up and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul simply responds, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all you do. There's nothing you can do to work or to earn or to prepare yourself. You just receive a gift. It's better than Christmas morning. By the way, what'd you get? Unless your birthday is December 25th, what do you think you're doing opening gifts on, on Christmas morning, right? We just receive a gift. That's what saving faith is, is laying hold of that. The great and classic hymn of the church, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Paul had reminded Timothy of the right use of the law in this letter, the necessity to stand for the truth, the proper way to pray, the role of women in the church, the qualification of church elders, uh, summarize the gospel, and the, the importance and goodness of food and marriage. All of these things. He says, if you hold these before the brothers and feed and nourish the people, you will be a good servant. I already used this illustration, so I apologize for the folks at Trinity who are hearing this a second time today. But I was at a conference in Mississippi this past week for pastors. And the main speaker uh, used the analogy, speaking to 200 pastors. But I was praying for him. That's a tough assignment, preaching in front of 200 Presbyterian pastors. Uh, we are a, crunk, uh, a cranky bunch at times. But uh, he said, he said, men, you know what you are in the kingdom of God? You're a busboy. You're a busboy. Think of what a busboy does in a restaurant or a waiter. Do they cook the food in the kitchen? No. When you have a good meal, like a delicious meal, you go out and say, oh, this food is so good. You say, boy, wasn't the busboy so good tonight? No, you don't celebrate the busboy. You glory and celebrate in the richness of the food. And that's all we are doing as not only leaders and servants in the church, but as fellow believers, one another, we're just digging into the good food. We're setting before ourselves. And it's important to have a good diet. It's important to have a good spiritual diet. What are we setting ourselves and our hearts upon? It's important to maintain this affection and love 
for Jesus Christ and to look to Him, no matter who you are, no matter what you do. If you're careful what you eat spiritually, if you're careful how you exercise, not for the world, but for godliness, and also if you're careful what your goals are, we all will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. We live not to hear the applause of the world or the admiration of our peers, but we serve and live for the applause of heaven. And so that one day, when we meet our maker face to face, we hear those sweet and beautiful words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Notice Jesus won't say, well done, thou good and successful servant. But well done, thou good and faithful servant.